Greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg with another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. I believe this is episode number 712, or it might be like 17 or something. It's really hard for me to keep track when you microdose as much LSD as I do. And this week's episode of... (coughs) Excuse me, I'm still getting over the pneumonia. Or maybe it's the plague, I'm not sure. Uh, This week's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by a new advertiser, the Dollar Shave Club. Now, uh, those of you who have uh, listened to other podcasts, you might have heard this pitch before. Dollar Shave Club is looking to be the full-service grooming company for men. Basically, if a guy can do it in a bathroom, not going to get X-rated here, but if a guy, whatever a guy needs to do to sort of keep himself looking good, feeling good, smelling good, they want to provide it. They want to take care of you. Um, they got their start by doing shaving stuff, and the shaving stuff is great. I've used it before. Uh, they got this stuff, which is like, they call it shave butter, which kind of reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where Kramer actually shaves with butter and everyone thinks they smell popcorn. But it actually, it 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 works. It's great. I used a little of it from my sample package this week, although I, I'm growing this beard, so I had to do it around my, my neck and upper cheek level, and and I didn't do it on my back, but I, I hear from John Podoritz that it works wonders there, too. They even have a new product coming out, which I like to call Paul Krugman's column, but they prefer to call it a butt wipe, but it's the same principle. And they have body cleansers, and it's this great sort of uh, head-to-tail or head-to-toe, one-stop shopping kind of thing for the guy who doesn't, doesn't want to sort of worry about getting quality stuff. And so this is a great time to give the Dollar Shave Club a try. You can get your first month of their best razor along with travel size versions of shave butter, body cleanser, and yes, even Paul Krugman's column. I mean, butt wipes for just $5. After that, replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the Dollar Shave Club starter set. Get yours for just $5 exclusively at the dollarshaveclub.com slash dingo. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash dingo. Sign up today. Okay, so now we're going to get started with our um, conversation this week with the uh, lovely and talented Kristen Soltis-Anderson. And uh, so that's the next mellifluous voice that you're going to hear. We're going to just jump right in. This is, a, this is an august occasion for the Remnant podcast. It's sort of like in my cigar shop. Once every two months or so, um, a woman walks in and everything gets really quiet and giggly because everyone can't believe there's a girl in the clubhouse. And so the very first female, um, which is not why she's here, but it's worth celebrating in this spirit of gender equality, parading people around in dunce caps, whatever we're doing these days, Kristen Soltis Anderson is here. Uh, she is a pollster, a, a cephologist, um, which every, every listener of this podcast knows is a word going back to the ancient Greece, which means the counting of votes when they used to count with pebbles, um, and it's one who studies elections. And she's the author of something called The Selfie Vote, and I've known her for years from many green rooms, basically. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to break this uh, high glass ceiling. It is. Well, it's it's a glass ceiling. Whether it's high or not, you know, <laughs> remains to be seen. I'm not sure it will make it in your uh, 
you know, in your obituary that you were the first female guest on the Remnant podcast. But, you know, we take our victories where we can. So may I tell the story of how you came to invite me to be on the podcast? You may. It's a little embarrassing for me, but no, that's fine. No, see, I don't think it's embarrassing, yeah. but I, I, I think it's it, – it, sparks a relevant discussion or rather sort of reveals uh, an internal contradiction that I have. Uh-huh. So I, I was here for at the, the beautiful American Enterprise Institute Palace to Commerce in the Center-Right and encountered you at the holiday party. And you said that you had been getting some grief uh-huh. from people about not having had a woman on the show yet. And so would I be willing to participate? And I said, yes, certainly. Sure. And then later that evening, you sent me an email sort of apologizing for for that ask, yeah. uh, which I also appreciated because I, I think have... the email subject header was "I'm incredibly stupid," <laughs> so just to be clear about that. Uh, I, I think I can I can verify that yeah. I was something in, like that. I was in the room, and that is what was said. Because when it comes to you know being the woman on a panel at a conference or things like that, I'm I'm sort of of two minds. On the one hand, I, I rebel against the idea of quotas or box checking. You should have the guests on your show who you want to have on your show. We're going to introduce interesting discussion and dialogue and and all that. And so the idea of, ah, well, I've, I've got to check this box is something that on the one hand, I, I just never like. On the other hand, I've been to so many conferences where there will be, it'll just be all men yeah. up on a panel. And I will think to myself, was there really no one who was equally qualified to the folks up on that stage who's also a woman in this field, because blessedly, women are, are, are thriving in so many fields. And so I, I these are like two things that I have in conflict, where the number of times I've been on a panel and someone's come up and been like, it was so good to have a woman's voice on the panel. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm very uncomfortable representing all women right. on whatever the topic is. But B, if they hadn't invited me, I would have been sitting in the back of the room going, well, why is this an all male? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, so it's it is this like tension within kind of considering oneself a feminist and believing in women's equality that these two beliefs are in tension, and so <laughs> no, no. But the thing is, you know, you were on a list with many men and all this stuff about being on, and like Megan McArdle's another one we've talked about for a long time. I need to have on here, and there's a standing invitation to my wife, but she will not do it. But I just we had, I just had this stupid conversation about having. More lady folk on, and I had um, been a little deep in my cups, and for whatever reason, I awkwardly blurted out that way. And then when I got home, I was like, "Oh man, I'm an idiot," <laughs> and I just felt so bad about it. And you were very gracious about saying, "Don't worry about it." But it is funny. Like, I don't know if you know this, but I'm sort of like the Rosa Parks of gender integration. I went to an all women's college, and um, when I became the editor of the school paper, it was really interesting how many. Feminist women, you can imagine there are a lot of feminists in all women's college, came up to me and said, well, you know, you really should have a women's news section. And I always thought it was so bizarre that in an all-women's school where men were wildly outnumbered that the desire to self-ghettoize sort of actuated, like the clock started the second men showed up. I was like, you really think it's just like there's there's real news and then there's women's news? and But there's this... It's a tension in there regardless, and it kind of reminds me of all that. But anyway, enough about venting our feminist credentials here, although uh, <laughs> I do want to ask you about some of the crazy stuff that's going on here. But let's let's start with something which has already been normalized. I don't know. Like normally when we – like when Andy Ferguson cursed on here, we had to put an explicit warning on the podcast, uh, you know, MA, mature content or whatever. And poor Andy still – 
mad at himself about that. But now that CNN and all these networks are saying, I just kind of feel like I'm, I'm allowed to say it's a it's fair use kind of thing, right? So anyway, what do you think about this whole thing? And uh, you don't have to use the word yourself, but what do you think it sort of represents about the larger issues of Trump life? Well, I, I, I won't use the word itself for, for two reasons. One, I, I just generally don't in public settings, mm-hmm. I, like anytime I've ever been on real time, that's the one place where you're supposed to have the freedom to. Right. And I never have. Uh, but two, in the Anderson family household, we have a swear jar for 2018, okay. $5 per infraction. Nice. Really intense. And just driving in the District of Columbia has already yeah, yeah. Uh, racked me up a, a fairly substantial toll. So I, I don't want to add to my okay. to my total today. But one, this is one of those instances where something happens that seems on its face to be so obviously horrible. Mm-hmm. And yet I am now conditioned to hear something like this and my brain immediately goes... 35% of America loved it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's an uncomfortable it's it's the the I'm having tried to learn to correct the mistakes that I made in kind of missing the rise of Trump to begin with. I now when something like this happens immediately assume and it's it's not hard to people think this is going to hurt him. I don't think it's going to too badly. And and over the last year, holding that position of bad thing X happened, but it's probably not going to hurt his numbers, has held up pretty well. Despite all of the insanity and madness of the last 12 months, President Trump's job approval has been astonishingly stable. Yeah, but isn't that somewhat the function of the fact that once you drive in and nail all the way in, you keep pounding it, it's not going to go any deeper into the wood? If you're the type of person who thinks that that sort of comment is horrible, you thought Donald Trump he was lost horrible you a long, long time ago. Right, that's right. what I'm saying, right. So Yes, yeah, so there's there's nowhere really left to go. I mean, I, I, I've, I've figured it out to where I've looked at a handful of questions along the lines of, do you approve or disapprove of how the president uses Twitter and stuff like that? And the really hardcore, hardcore are about 25 yeah. percent of voters who they love Twitter. But there's another 10 to 15 percent that maybe they don't love the the s-hole comment, but they like that the stock market's where it's at. And they're sort of willing to forgive anything, even if they don't like it, because... He's better than the alternative. All right. So that, but that raises a question I've been meaning to get to the bottom of. Is it that they like where the stock market is at or is it that they like whatever rationalization they can find for justifying their support of Trump? And if, say, the stock market weren't up but some other indicator was looking good, would they cite that instead? I mean my point is is that it seems to me that they that, – that I'll, I'll, maybe not the full 35 percent. You know, the CBS poll had like 18 percent that were like the hardcore, hardcore. But some fraction of the people who support Trump, it seems to me that they start from the premise that they support Trump and then they backfill their explanation for why. And so is it really that – because this is getting to a more important question in a second. Is it really that the stock market is up is why they're willing to discount their tweets or is it just that they're, they just want to support Donald Trump and they're going to find an explanation for why they support Donald Trump. Uh, And this is not unique to Donald Trump. But people do come up with reasons to support their fellow partisans, um, which Donald Trump transcends that a little bit because there are a lot of people that are loyal to him but not loyal in any way to the Republican Party. But 
so take let's take the stock market, for example. If in October 2016, I had asked a sample of a thousand registered voters, do you think the economy is going in the right direction or the wrong direction? You would have an awful lot of Democrats saying the economy is in the right direction. Stock market looks great. Unemployment is low. Thanks, Obama. And you'd have a lot of Republicans saying, no, the economy's terrible. Good for you elites that the stock market is right. great, but wages are stagnant. Uh, people can't get ahead. Uh, there's all, you know poverty, the working class, all of that. And then after Election Day, those numbers flip. And now suddenly the very same folks that just a couple of months before the election said the economy is terrible, Donald Trump takes office and within a week, all of a sudden, the stock market going up suddenly becomes a valid indicator right, right. of, oh, look, everything is fine. And and conversely, for Democrats, these things that they were pointing to and saying, look how great Obama is, it has done, suddenly those are, are less proof that President Trump a year into his administration is, is still doing well. Yeah. I mean, I've seen data that shows that this phenomenon happens for Republicans and Democrats, and I understand all that. There's a tribal thing going on. But it does seem to me that over the last two years – the amount of reverse engineering support for Trump is unlike anything I've ever seen on the right. And, you know, I, I there are prominent social conservatives I know who used to take the position that profanity in public, crudeness in public was, was, was worse than any policy consideration because you're supposed to model good character and all that. And now these same social conservatives are of the position, well, he's just authentic and he's, you know, I'm trying not to out friends of mine, but, you know, this idea that authenticity, even if it's authentic crudeness, is a value unto itself is is nowhere to be found in the last 40 years of conservative thought. And it just emerges, you know, ex nihilo around this guy to, to sort of reverse rationalize support for. Yeah, it's, it's the ends justify the means has become the... Uh, that is where I think the right is right now. And so even if you don't like the fact that Donald Trump uses this crude language and beyond the crudeness of the language, the concept itself, the people coming from poor countries uh, have have less of a, a right to be here. We shouldn't want them here. I mean, the concept in addition to the language are both both appalling. But it's this, well, but at least maybe we'll get that corporate tax reform we wanted or right. well, but we'll but. But Gorsuch, right? We'll get we'll get the judges we wanted, and so uh, I, I think the argument is is who is really harmed by Trump being Trump if he's just tweeting into the void and being crude and and that's style stuff. But what about the policies? If he's repealing the Clean Power Plan and he's doing X, Y, and Z, and these are th- things that we've wanted for so long, if he is the vehicle to achieve those things. I'm willing to – I think that's the argument. You know, I understand it's the argument. And I don't think it's right, but I think that's – No, I, I, I get that that's the argument. I just think it's disingenuously proffered by a lot of people. Some people are very honest about it. You know, and they're, like I think Hugh Hewitt, to his credit, struggles with this tension a lot and he really cares about judges and he cares about the deregulation stuff. And he's also put off by the crudeness and he tries to, you know – thread this needle. And, and, and to his credit, he made this argument in 2016 that you're, you're electing 4,000 of our bureaucrats or 4,000 of their bureaucrats. Better we get our, you know, and this sort of idea that's a parliamentary democracy that we're living in now and all the rest. And I get that. So some people are sincere about it and they try to make good faith arguments. But I meet a lot of people who don't know the first thing about clean power, you know, the, the power regulations or any of that stuff or 
you know, what they're what what they're looking for are convenient talking points to defend a decision that they've already made. And the idea that, you know, the average person who screams, give him hell, Sean, when they turn on Hannity at night, really, really cares deeply about what happens to these DACA kids or whether or not um, we shrink some national parks in the out out west. I just don't buy. Um, Some sure, but a lot no. And instead, it's just much more of a tail wagging the dog phenomenon. But this gets to the, the sort of larger point I wanted to make, which is that there are a lot of people, it seems to me, who have convinced themselves, serious people, you know, friends of mine who were on Fox News and other people, have simply convinced themselves that James Carville was the progenitor of the iron law of politics, which says it's the economy stupid, and if the economy's doing well, voters won't care about anything else. Look at Clinton, blah, 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 and, and that they only vote on pocket, pocketbook issues. It seems to me that that is empirically false historically, right? I mean, people, the economy matters until it doesn't matter, right? How would you explain it to, I mean, explain it to me. I mean, how much does the economy matter? Is it a matter of sort of necessity but not sufficiency for voters? You know, what was, what elections have been purely about economic or pocketbook issues? I mean, maybe 1932, right? What do you think of this whole idea that it's the economy stupid will and that that a 4% growth will erase all of this other stuff. I think it changes from election to election. I think a bad economy is more of a driver of people's attitudes than a good economy. Uh-huh. But like let's take the 2012 election. I'm a big fan of Mitt Romney. One of the things that sort of breaks my heart about the way that the 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 message that he ran on was this um, you know, kind of, well, are you better off than you were four years ago? And for a lot of Americans, the answer was yes, because four years ago <clears throat> in 2008, right. the country was economically on fire. Right. And so instead, had the question instead been, who do you think will make you better off four years from now? That I think would have been more potent, but it was it was really like, let's just litigate the Obama yeah. legacy. And enough people were fine enough with where Obama had taken us that that just wasn't compelling enough to make a change. But I think in the last election in 2016, I I reject the idea that it was this all about the economy uh, message. I've, I've seen enough data that suggests that people sort of broke into partisan camps and that for the folks who uh, were in the middle, that big drivers were anxieties about things like immigration, a belief that America is changing really quickly, whether that's demographically, technologically, socially, and they just aren't there are winners and losers in that change, and they perceive themselves as being on the losing side of that change. And so, sure, there's an economic piece to it. Uh, you know, the uh, the example I've used is that there are some folks that get angry when they have to call a customer service line, and they can tell that the customer service line is being answered in another country because that's an American job, and why is it over there? Right. There are some people that are mad about that because they don't like talking to someone who they have a tough time understanding, and they feel upset about that. And then there's some people that think, This is just corporate America trying to screw the little guy, um, having nothing to do with the international component and just being sort of frustrated that the elites are getting after them. And those are related in some way to economic anxiety, but it's not just purely a pocketbook thing. It's it's I think people I think what Donald Trump did effectively was can was tell a lot of people 
who felt like society was saying you're a bad person. And he comes along and says, no, you're a good person. Are you the type of person that over you know Thanksgiving dinner, please don't talk about politics over Thanksgiving dinner, listeners, by the way. But if you were the, you know, having a conversation and you're the, the one who thinks, yeah, why do we have all these people coming from these countries that are poor? And then Donald Trump puts voice to it, even if you're not someone who's ever said it, but maybe you've thought it, Donald Trump validates for you that this bad behavior is actually good behavior. And that is a very motivational thing. Although it seems to me that, I mean, I agree with all that, but it seems to me that Donald Trump had, I mean, I've said this before on this podcast, but he had two core mandates. I mean, two, very similar to Barack Obama's core mandates. Barack Obama's mandate, chief mandate was to not be George W. Bush. And he accomplished that on day one. Donald Trump's mandate was to not be Hillary Clinton and or Barack Obama, and he accomplished that on day one. And the only other one that truly – only other issue that truly unified the right, it seems to me, was the court stuff. I mean appointing conservative judges, which is why he was smart to farm it out to the Federal Society. But beyond that, I mean immigration divides the GOP, right? I mean pretty much all of the signature Trump issues are divisive on the right which is one of the reasons why you would have a 35% approval rating, right? And so, but my point about the the asshole thing, and Jack, you can go back and bleep my, so in, in deference to the Anderson, uh, you know, up moral uprightness that we're going to follow in 2018. You know, I wrote about this the other day. This asshole comment thing seems... If you try to put a dollar value on it, it's about 1% of GDP in terms of growth, right? Because the whole theory that the, the, the Fox Business Channel guys have, a lot of the people on Fox have, is that if you have 4% growth, all of this stuff just gets thrown away. People are going to like their tax rebates and their lower taxes and they're going to like their jobs and they're just not going to care about all this other stuff. And that's not true for millennials, right? I mean, Not at all. Yeah. And it's not true for a lot of people. And so I think in theory, economic growth can erase a lot. But every time he does something like this, the amount of economic growth you need has to go up, right? And I just don't know if we get a couple more events like this, the amount of economic growth that we're going to need is just going to be, you know... You know 11% economic growth or something. Yeah, it, what we don't know is what Donald Trump's numbers would look like in the alternate universe where growth is not right. as, as high as it is or where the stock market is not as high as it is. Or, right. unemployed, you know, or the alternate well, universe where he didn't tweet and say stupid things. Right. So we don't know what, what the alternatives are. But I, I would be more nervous if as a Republican looking at the situation because it's not as though, wow, you know, he does all of this crazy stuff, but he's still sitting around 40%. It's the economy is doing so good and he's still only at 40%. Clearly, that is not enough to... There are a lot of folks that will say, "I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we're not currently at nuclear war and I'm glad that I've currently got a job. But at a certain point, is there no one else that could have provided this to us without all of the tweeting and all of the baggage? Do you know, this is just Straight informational question. Do you know when the last time or if ever you've had such a marked disconnect between the economic approval and the overall and presidential approval numbers? I mean, normally they kind of go together, right? Kind of. So Barack Obama had been – he had typically had a job approval number that I think was higher than his economic job approval number. But what people – 
early in his administration gave him credit for were things like foreign affairs. And right. that began to decline later in his presidency. And and so for Obama, I seem to recall that his job approval tracked a little more closely with his foreign policy job approval than, than economics. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but my assumption is that during around 2005, 2006, George W. Bush probably had a very low approval rating. You had Katrina. You had, uh, you know, the war in Iraq. Right. Uh, and and yet the economy was good then, as as we now know, it was fragile. It was on the precipice of of being really bad. But in two thousand five, two thousand six, those signs had not emerged in full bloom. And so I, I would suspect you would, if you looked back, you'd see some kind of a disconnect there as well. Yeah. So let's talk about this millennial stuff. I mean, I'm on record really hating youth politics and <laughs> hating youth identity. Pol- I think youth politics is sort of the lowest form of identity politics because. You literally did nothing to be born, right? It's all your parents' work. And if you take particular pride in your identity based upon the year you happen to be born, you really have no other accomplishments to speak of, right? But that's that's my own gripe. I don't like these damn kids on my lawn and all that and all their baby sloths but, and their avocado toast. But as a matter of just rank politics, it matters. They're now the biggest voting block, right? Or potential voting block. Biggest potential voting block. And how much damage do you think – or I'll be less leading to the witness. What do you think the asshole stuff and things like it and, and the Trump presidency in general is doing for millennials um, and their impression of the GOP? So I have often said that I don't know that you could create in a lab a president more ill-suited to winning young voters to the GOP. And this comment is a perfect example of, of the reason why Donald Trump is ill-suited to win over young people. Now, I should I should add a, there is a caveat here, which is that there are pockets within young conservatism that really love Donald oh, yeah. Trump. Yeah. Um, when you look at, at a, a poll of young people and you look at the subsample of the young Republicans, two thirds of them like Donald Trump yeah. uh, and and believe and, and it believe things like refugees are a big threat, um, believe things like climate change isn't isn't happening or isn't a big deal. Um, who hold these views? The problem is that they are significantly different from the vast majority of the rest of their generation. And so while it is likely that if you are Donald Trump and you go speak at CPAC, there is going to be a ballroom full of college kids with their MAGA hats on, really excited. And their and ties down past their crotches, too, because that's and, the other thing that I but, but anyway. But what you will have in that room is most of the young people in America who really like Donald Trump, right. that, that he has an enthusiastic uh group of supporters among young people. They are just very different from and and in many ways out of step with uh, the rest of their generation. Um, The issues that most divide young Republicans who like Trump and young Republicans who don't like Trump are views on immigration, refugees and climate change. But refugees is sort of the biggest the biggest one that divides them. If you are a young Republican, but you don't like Donald Trump, you are very likely to say that you don't think refugees pose a threat to America. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're talking about, well, why are we bringing people here from these s-hole countries? I mean, that is just inflaming that that divide within the right, Mm -hmm. which is the sort of issue that I think if we're at risk of losing even more young people from the GOP, it's going to be an issue like this that further drives them away. Because it seems to me, I mean, so there's that, there's the 
there's the long-term brand problem among young people, right? And then there's the problem with, and I think I've sort of exaggerated the extent of this. I always say that, I often say that the real base of the Republican Party up at least until 2016 wasn't sort of non-college educated truck driver MAGA hot guys. I'm not disparaging them, but it wasn't that demographic that people have come to associate with Trump. It was sort of college-educated, professional, married couples in the suburbs raising kids, trying to be like bourgeois value families, right? And they they may or may – it seems to me they may or may not agree with the spirit of the asshole comment, right? But man, do they hate the crudeness of the conversation. And they hate – they're embarrassed to be – talking like this and having to defend this stuff at their kids' social events or at the club or wherever. And that seems to me the the story coming out of Alabama, right, is that we're just losing those kinds of Republicans, which the GOP kind of desperately needs. Well, the gamble that was made by the Trump folks and which I think they believe is still a winning formula for them is that for every one of those uh, you know, moms in the suburbs who drives a minivan to take little Jimmy to violin practice. If you lose her, you're gaining two of the guys wearing MAGA hats in West Virginia who previously would have voted for a Democrat but now are on the Trump train. Does that and math work? It it worked in 2016. I don't think it works again. Um, yeah. But and and I'm I try to be very very humble when I make claims about what can or can't be done electorally because. I did not think it was likely that Donald Trump would win the election. I didn't think it was impossible, but I didn't think it was likely. And so now I think it's really unlikely that that this formula will work for Republicans long term. Um, in some ways, again, you know, there are different ways of looking at 2016. Either you say, well, Donald Trump, did, he didn't win the popular vote. So look, this formula doesn't matter. Um, or... Well, he it worked, but it was only because, you know, you flip 80,000 votes in a couple counties here and there, and it's a totally different universe. But the, the Trump folks, they, they did win, um, mm-hmm. and, and they won by bucking the assumption that folks like me had said, look, you can't win by just doubling down on, on sort of working class white voters and trying to steal them from Democrats. Because you've got all these young people and all of these Hispanic voters, and these are growing blocks. And if you do what you need to do to get Group A, you are going to lose badly with Group B. And Trump did lose badly with Group B, but in just the right places, it was just right. enough. It was like five counties, four in Florida, one in Michigan or something, right? Right. Um, I mean, if you look at a state like Colorado, Virginia, you know, these are places where Donald Trump did not do particularly right. well. So th- I, I think for Republicans in 2018, if if I'm them, I'm, I'm worried about this because the folks who reliably turn up in midterms tend to look more like the Republican you described at the mm-hmm. beginning, the 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 mom in the suburbs, middle to upper middle class. That's who votes in midterms. Um, and so if Donald Trump's not on the ballot, does his coalition turn out? Or instead, can Democrats put together this coalition of folks who may not have voted in midterms? but And they may not have voted in 2016 because they thought Donald Trump didn't have a chance. Right. And now they're they want to make up for that that mistake. And so they're coming out. And you've seen that pattern in a lot of these special elections where Democrats are just they're pushing their own turnout way past the red line among groups like upscale college educated whites. Or in Alabama, you saw you know boosts in turnout among African-Americans. Democrats are figuring out how to activate for every comment that Donald Trump makes like s that 
you know, maybe gets a couple folks in his own party to go, yeah, that's true. There are voters who are, are just going to say, I'm I'm sick of it and I'm, I'm over it and I just can't. I just can't keep doing this. Because yeah, this, this is the thing that drives me nuts, and I should have Andrew Clavin or some sane Trump defender slash apologist on to talk about this more detail. But I run into smart people, serious people, all of the time, who you know they'll ask me, "So, how do you think Trump is doing?" And I'll say, "Well, I think you should stop tweeting." Like I know, like they're coming from a different perspective, and I'm just going to be honest, but I don't want to get into a thing. And usually that's a safe thing to say, mm-hmm. you know. And I'd say 20% of the time they say, well, I, I'm not sure about that. It seems to me that the tweeting is really working for him. And I get so frustrated. And I'm like, give me some metric. Give me some tangible, objective criteria that says this tweeting is, quote, unquote, working for him. He's got the lowest approval rating in, in presidential history. He is... The place he is constantly – he basically has an independent counsel going after him because of his tweeting. Um, he's constantly creating scandals that distract him from getting stuff done and make it harder for his agenda to get accomplished. And then what you get is, well, but he's, he's puncturing political correctness and he's – he keeps the media off guard. And, I, and it's all of this foggy talk radio weirdness. And, I, and is, can you, as a data person – and I normally think what people like you do is witchcraft, and we'll get to that. <laughs> Can you point to something tangible that, that makes the case that the tweeting and the associated Trumpy stuff is actually is legitimately working for him? It's hard for me to make a case that it's working for him because if I'm looking at the the magic witchcraft data, a lot of that suggests this is the thing that his supporters are most likely to give him take take marks off for. Um, I've heard it in focus groups where I've sat down with Trump supporters and they'll talk about how they think he's doing a good job because they think the you know like sure. we talked about before the economy is doing well all that, but they'll say yeah if I had to give him a grade maybe I'd give him a B because I'd take off some points for the tweeting that's that's not necessary maybe he could stop that and and you know the joke is that they, the White House has infrastructure week like every week and yeah. infrastructure week gets blown up by uh, whatever the the latest thing is and gosh wouldn't it just be great if President Trump could just keep his mouth closed and just build some roads and bridges for once I think the argument in favor of why the tweeting would work is that he again it's it's the he's been doing it all this time and he became president and his job approval is still at 40 percent right which is not great but but that's the other argument you get is his job approval doesn't tank when he tweets something crazy right but this sort of gets the other argument about how you know him doing x is justified because his base loves it and you know among other things if 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 left-wingers were making that argument up about Barack Obama, the right would set its hair on fire about how, you know, Barack Obama is not just the president of, of African-Americans or he's just not the president of college professors or whatever, his, however you want to define his base, right? And if you just kept saying, well, this is, this is worth doing because these are the people who elected him, that argument both as a matter of civics is really bad, right? Because the president is the president of everybody. But... It's also bad in terms of politics because historically what presidents are supposed to do is satisfy their base just enough that they don't leave them because they know they have them in their pocket and then attract other coalitions to their side. And yet we are now almost exactly one year into the presidency and all he does is base service. 
And that's how you get a president who has sub-40 approval ratings, right? I mean, has there ever been another president who just solely cared about catering just to his base? It's possible, and I'm I'm gonna I'm sure someone will tweet that I've like missed some historical example. I think the Martin reason... Van Buren was just in the <laughs> tank. But yeah, no, I agree. But there's there's <laughs> I think I think the reason why he does it is that he looks at the 2016 election and says, "All these people who didn't like me, they said I couldn't do it. My base believed in me because again, the number one thing that that. I think the president is focused on is the idea that he is a winner and everybody loves a winner and he wants to talk about how much he he wins and that's you know people who tell him he's a winner he loves and his base tells him that was yeah. the folks they were the folks that said we think you're going to win and so he looks at everybody else and is like you thought I couldn't do this and I did and so I'm going to go care about these people who are right and who are get who get it and I'm just going to kind of assume that you all won't get it until you see how much we're winning and then you'll want to jump on the train and I think it is foolish and I I think he and too many of the people around him assume that because because they won in 2016, their strategy is infallible. And therefore, Donald Trump has figured out the magic way to win elections and that all of these experts who do all of this witchcraft, we're all morons and we don't know anything. And therefore, he's just going to win forever. And I, I think they dramatically overestimate or underestimate how lucky he was that the few things broke the way they did in the right. counties that they did in the states that they did. And how lucky he was to have the opponent that he did. Sure. Uh, and and I think they, that in 2018, folks are in for a rude awakening. So I want to get back to the rude awakening thing, but I figure I owe you the opportunity to defend your dark occult arts of polling. What are the things that you think people get the most wrong when they talk about polling? I think one of the things folks get the most wrong is they focus so intensely on the horse race question. Who's up? Who's down? Doug Jones, is he up by six or is he down by 10? Donald Trump, is he down by five or is he down by 15? And there's so much of a focus on that. And what 99 percent of polling and market research does is not that. It is not trying to figure out to an extreme level of precision using just a sample of a thousand or fewer people how something two weeks from now is going to go. And so the insane reliance on the horse race, I think, has driven has driven the media crazy. Uh, it's, I know it's always it's always easy to you know take a punch at the media, um, but I, I do think that the the treatment of politics as a professional sport, with polls as the scoreboard, is a problem mm. um, because I think. What I, what I use a poll for is to say, okay, I'm going to test five different messages, and message A gets 70% agree with it, message B gets 60% agree with it, message C, D, and E, it's less than 50%. So let's talk a lot about message A. But the difference between 70 and 71 or 69 or 68% isn't a huge deal as long as there's enough space between my options and mm-hmm. I can give strategic advice. But in an election, tenths of a yeah. percent matter in who wins or loses. And a poll has a margin of error that goes in both directions, a certain number of percentage points. And the, I think the uncertainty that is baked into every poll by virtue of the way statistics works is just not communicated well. And instead, polls are sold as, well, this poll shows Hillary Clinton's up by three. So that's God's honest truth. Right. Instead of saying, and, you know, folks will say, well, there's a margin of error. But I think people just, they they don't fully grasp the 
probabilistic thinking that you need to understand, look, a single poll saying X doesn't mean that that's reality. And that the value of polling is all of the questions that the public never sees that help drive strategy. But the other thing I'll say to defend polling is that the polls in 2016 at a national level were right. They were better than they were in 2012. When people say, how did you guys all miss it? The reason the polls, quote unquote, missed was because there were a handful of states where the the state-based polling missed badly, dramatically undercounted folks without a college degree. You fix education and you fix those polls. That was what got it wrong. Which states were like Wisconsin, Michigan, a couple of those? Yeah. uh, Ohio was off by a lot. Pennsylvania was off not by so much. And Pennsylvania is one of those states that I felt too confident that Hillary Clinton was going to win it, in part because I had bought the message four years ago when the Romney folks said, oh, we might win Pennsylvania. And I kind of halfway believed it. And so I overcorrected in 2016 and thought, well, these polls show Hillary Clinton winning by a little, but Republicans can never win Pennsylvania. So that was that was my bad. This is uh, pollster confessions. But it was a handful of state based polls that were bad. But Virginia polls were perfect. Uh, in, in the presidential year, New Hampshire polls were perfect. And you can't really say in uh, the special election in Alabama, were the polls right? Because the polls were all over the place because it's really hard to predict exactly what turnout is going to look like in an election. So that that's my defense of, of what we do, that what most people see from pollsters is the ballot test, that horse race number. And it is used to convey a sense of certainty about what the future will look like that it is not intended to convey. But so on the <coughs> excuse me on the on the issues and market research stuff and this is just my own impression uh, for want of a better word um one of the things that's always bothered me about that realm of things and I I'm not trying to break your food bowl or any of that kind of stuff but um it's it's all so non-falsifiable right I mean I just we did a focus group or we did a survey and it turns out that people like the word sunshine more than bright. Oh no, but that stuff drives me <laughs> crazy. No, I am I am with you on that. That 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 is in a lot of cases snake oil that is peddled because everybody wants the easy answer to figure out why does nobody like me? Yeah. Why does nobody like my product? And if you just change this word from this to that, magically everyone will see how great you are and how wonderful your product is. And it is such an easy it's such easy medicine to take if you're and somebody the, that's hired a consultant. It's, there are a lot of people in Washington who've gotten very rich. Oh yes, selling this BS, and it, it bothers me. So okay, so I'm, I'm no, no, I'm, no. We, as someone who works in this industry and sees pitches from competitors and things, there are a lot of good guys in this industry, and there are a lot of snake oil salesmen. And it's hard if you're a campaign, uh, you know, if you're a candidate running for office, to kind of know the difference. And oftentimes. It is so appealing to hear that, gosh, my policy only tests at 30 percent. But if I call it this instead of that, now it's everybody's at 65 percent. And look, good language is important. Figuring out the most effective way to talk about what you believe isn't useless. But, I mean, I have a column coming out in the Washington Examiner on on why we have so many red or blue state Republican governors with approval ratings through the roof, right? You've got Charlie Baker. You've got Larry Hogan. The reason why they are beloved is not because they have the right combination of words and they say sunshine instead of freedom. It's because their states are, are working reasonably well, well under yeah. their governance. And so 
the the product has to work. You can't just take. So after the 2012 election, there was this big um, metaphor that was being used by I think Eric Cantor was the the one who started it. This idea that well Republicans don't need to change the pizza; they just need to change the box, alluding to kind of Domino's. Uh, having reformulated their pizza to win back customers. He said, we don't need to reformulate the, pe- the the pizza. We just need to reformulate the box. But what I think they underestimated was that people thought that Republicans' pizza was killing them. Uh, and you can't just put that in a new box. You do have to sometimes rethink the pizza, which is kind of what the whole Reformicon movement was about. It wasn't just about let's put a new happy phrase right. on the party. Let's actually retool how we apply our principles to problems so that the middle and working class actually does see – economic uh, improvement for themselves and better quality of life and more opportunity. But it is so appealing to hear, oh, you don't actually need to exercise five times a week and cut down on your, you know, fats and alcohol. All you really need to do is if you eat a grapefruit with a side of ice cream for breakfast every day, you'll be great. And people buy the grapefruit and ice cream. Yeah. I mean, this is something that is, I'm I'm a big believer and I do whole speeches on how the Republican Party and the right in general got itself into a mess because it forgot that politics is about persuasion. And if you don't persuade people, go back to Aristotle. Politics is all about explaining to people that their interests will be better represented in your coalition than the one they're currently in, right? Politics is about addition. These are not new insights. And so I'm sympathetic. I mean, I'm certainly sympathetic to the Reformicon stuff because some of my best friends are Reformicons. Uh, I mean, we got a couple like Optimus Prime remashes in the building. So, <laughs> and uh, but at the same time, there is this thing among some serious movement conservative types that are not interested in ideas at all. And I could tell stories, but it would violate some confidences. And they just think it's purely a marketing problem now. And that strikes me as the kind that's that's a. That's a delusion, right? I mean, that is the kind of thing that, you know, loser guys tell themselves, well, she doesn't like me. She must be a lesbian. You know, it's that kind of thinking, right? And I think, well, let me back up on this. So Donald Trump as the president of the United States is, let's just say, he has a heavy impact on the brand, right? Do you think going forward... And it's a, it's a weird question to ask, and I know Bill Crystal asks this question of everybody all the time, given that the Republican Party in, institutionally in a lot of ways is, is about as strong as it's ever been or close to, right? Um, all these state houses, controls both houses, controls the presidency. But it feels to a lot of smart people that this is um, the last days of Versailles for the Republican Party. What do you think its chances are going forward? I am gravely concerned. And the reasons why I'm gravely concerned, I I guess let me start with the things that do give me hope. Things like these Republican governors in blue states who are doing a good job with a a sort of a a liberal mess that's been handed to them. And I, I think they are proving that there's a way to govern in a right of center fashion and that that can work um, and that can transcend all of the mess and the s-hole comments and everything. But what gravely worries me is that there has been no attention paid or very little attention paid to the ways in which America is changing and how we intend to apply the things we believe to this new reality that is headed our way. Pete Weiner uh, wrote a great column um, back 
think this was two or three years ago where he had a line that just stuck with me, which was something like that for conservatives, you know, there's this idea that that conservatives were the ones whenever change is happening that we always go, are we sure that change is good? Are we sure? That, and, and that's fine. But that at a certain point when change is happening and it is a, a, a good change or at least a neutral change. Can we begin embracing it instead of just fighting it constantly because it's changed? Can we learn to apply, embrace the change, ride with it, let it be the wind in our sails instead of the wind in our faces? And and we just haven't haven't done that. And the Trump era has been a doubling down on this idea that the changes we have experienced in America over the last two or three decades have been bad, that ever since Ronald Reagan left office, it's been all downhill from there. And that what we need to do is reclaim the America that existed at the end of the Reagan presidency or or earlier or, or earlier. And and I, I just think that there are forces out there that are much bigger than politics the demographic change, the technological change. These are things that are much, much bigger than what people think about the Republican Party that the Republican Party has not grappled with. And had we lost badly in 2016, may have finally been forced to. But instead, we didn't. And so everybody's very satisfied with themselves and thinks, hey, I've I've got the magic formula. I don't need to worry about all of this. I don't need to worry about these young people. I don't need to worry about these Latinos. I don't need to worry about the big changes that have come to the world because we're going to be fine. So this is the inherent contradiction in both both parties or both coalitions in that central to modern conservatism – even in the era of Trump, although it's taken a hit, is belief in free markets, right? Free market capitalism does more to unsettle established institutions and traditions and customs than any other force, more than any sort of weird intellectual disease that escaped a German university, right? It is, you know, it's Schumpeterian creative destruction, but conservatives defend it, and which is a bit of a contradiction. I can, I can offer explanations for it. I'm sure you can too. But for the party of tradition and stability and 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 in opposition to change, it's kind of a little weird that conservatives are the defenders of the, the greatest driver of change. Meanwhile, liberals who talk constantly about the need for change and more change and we can give you 10 dimes for a dollar or we can give you 20 nickels. I mean, it's just change all over the place. They are sort of reactionary when it comes to existing governmental arrangements and institutions and they don't want competition and they don't want, you know, I always say the Democrats are, are somehow have convinced an iPhone generation to vote for a post office party. Right. And so the question I sort of, that this is leading me to is, and I've talked about this a bunch on this podcast is that I think if you strip the issues down to the most, basic metaphysical level, take out maybe abortion and a couple other issues. The reason why Democratic Party exists is to not be the Republican Party. And the Republican Party exists to not be the Democratic Party, right? As I talk about often, my favorite New Yorker cartoon is two dogs sitting at a bar in pinstripe suits and one dog says to the other, it's not good enough that dogs succeed, cats must also fail, right? That's the spirit of things. So let's say the Republican Party goes the way of the Whigs and just vanishes, does the Democratic Party survive? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I think yes, because I think a new party would rise up to replace it. I mean, I, I think... Well, my point is, like, say, say you get some Bloombergian third party thing, right? And it kind of stings the GOP and kills it or something. And then you get some new sort of... 
if the Republican Party is no longer beholden to the, the, the calcified set of issues that sort of define the Republican Party, that could steal a lot of votes from Democrats, right? I mean, you could see it, it, it's sort of like that game you play, or at least I played like with my brother and my friends when I was a little kid where you both hold hands and then you spin around as fast as you can, sort of twirling, and you let go and you both fall backwards, right? If the Democratic Party and Republican Party are holding hands like that, and if one lets go and falls, the other one is likely to fall too because of just the way they're just sort of they're, – they're supporting each other by leaning against each other. Well, it would certainly realign who is in which coalition. So there's a, a study that uh, – or a great paper by um, uh, an academic named Lee Drutman where he asked uh, about 8,000 voters, I think, where they stood on a bunch of economic issues and on a bunch of – cultural and identity issues, and then plotted everybody out on a a chart. So if you were 10 of 10 on the conservative economic, you were all the way to the right on the one axis. And so, you know, people kind of sort themselves into quadrants. Mm -hmm. And you have, you know, this big cluster of folks that are economically center right to moderate and then are pretty socially conservative. And those are the Republicans. And then you had a bunch of people that were Economically very progressive, socially very progressive. Those were the Democrats. And then on the rest of the chart, there's this big group of people that are pretty socially and culturally conservative, but are also economically progressive. These mm-hmm. are the folks that Donald Trump kind of poached away from from the Democrats, uh, the get your government hands off my Medicare type type scene. And then there's this other quadrant, the, well, I'm fiscally conservative, but I'm socially progressive. And Jonah, you and I know all 15 people that live in right. that quadrant. Right. There, it was empty. It's empty on the chart. So if a blue, if we were one to have a third party, I think when folks say that, they underestimate the odds that that third party would look a lot more Pat Buchanan than mm-hmm. Mike Bloomberg. Right, right, right. But assuming that a, assuming that one of those other quadrants suddenly becomes the party, I assume that Democrats would bleed into that other quadrant across the way to steal more voters that have been abandoned and are now even further away from the existing opposition party. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Democrats themselves would fall, but I think that it would then be a strong incentive to have to really rethink their coalition and who is in it to either try to absorb some of the folks that feel disenfranchised by the disappearance of the the Trump Republican Party, or they, yeah, they would just, expand into to fill the vacuum. I guess it just seems to me that it's always struck me, is, because I've always thought that the Democratic Party was more coalitional than the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party has a coalition, but it's much more sort of, as Reagan used to say, if you agree with me on seven things, you're my, out of ten things, you're my, you're my ally, you're not my enemy kind of thing. And the Democrats, for a long time, had that FDR coalition you know, the original FDR coalition had Klansmen and communist Jews and blacks in it, which is a strange coalition. And it lasted for a long time, but it always struck me as odd that the party of the Teamsters was also the party of gay marriage. And I think one of the things that Trump shows is that he's peeling off the Teamsters from that, right? But it just seems to me that, that if you have a nativist, nationalist, Bannonist party, you lose a lot of of the bourgeois, up-and-coming, you know, married, suburban, the, the John Ossoff Republican di- district guys. You lose those who may not want to join the Democratic Party and may not need to if if the reason why the Democratic Party existed, if it loses some of its raison d'etre because 
the Republican Party that they were opposing had vanished, I just think it becomes kind of a free-for-all. And you could see all the pieces. Maybe the name survives. But I'm, I'm interested also in what the world will look like if down the road, so to, to go briefly back to the millennial topic, what we were also seeing is this dramatic increase in young people identifying themselves as independents. Right. Now, they're functionally voting like Democrats, but right. they still don't want the label. And I think that's interesting. And that's, I mean, frankly, it's one thing that I have for a while said, Republicans, this is an opportunity. They may be voting like Democrats, but there's something that's keeping them from wanting to put that label on themselves. Pounce. You have the opportunity. And second, for the points that you made before about the free market being this incredibly disruptive thing and uh, the idea that Republicans just have to be more like Democrats to win young voters, I think, is ridiculous um, and is flawed and is an easy way for people to dismiss the idea that we should win young voters. Because Well, they like Democrats because we just have to be more like Democrats. It's it's sillyhood and it's nonsense. Um, but I, I think the I'm interested to see what will happen to the parties in an era or one. They're sort of legally weaker institutions in a post-Citizens United world. Mm-hmm. You know, you have outside groups and super PACs and, you know, the the party groups can stand up and say, no, we don't want Roy Moore. And then Roy Moore happens. And, you know, there is right. there is less institutional power at the same time that party um, sort of tribalism. And, well, if you're a Republican, I just could never respect you at a time when that is really high. The technical institutions of the parties are fairly weak. And so what will happen if these millennials who are identifying, you know, much more as independents these days, if they don't ever wind up choosing a party and the ranks of the parties themselves really begin to decline. I am very curious about what that future will look like. All right. I know we're running long here. Just very quickly, you're, I know this sounds like the tallest skyscraper in Kansas kind of thing, but you're an older millennial, right? I am. Okay. But you're a millennial. I am, technically. So the broad definition is people born in the 80s and 90s. Okay. Which is a lot of people. And so, and you're married, correct? Yes. Okay. So- we're recording this on a Tuesday, and there's this big, gross story about Aziz Ansari. Is that how you pronounce his name? Aziz Ansari? Aziz Ansari, yeah. And about dating where this young woman was naked and participating in all sorts of acts. We're going to be as clean about this as we can, but still felt abused because she didn't want to have sex. And there are a bunch of these kinds of stories that... As a as a man in his late forties, who's who's really whose soul is much older than that, I just thank my lucky stars that I am happily married and safe from this entire universe of things. But without, I mean, I would love for you to make news if you have some exciting, horrible testimonials to say. But what the hell is wrong with millennials that they don't know to how to like? Millennial men and women just, like, don't know how to date anymore. So th- what the this whole Aziz Ansari saga has reminded me of is this this concept that Ross Douthat has talked about, which is that HBO's show Girls, have you ever watched yeah, it? Sure, yeah, sure, sure. That it is actually proof that the feminist movement and social conservatives should team up uh-huh. in the fight against bad male behavior because uh, – there are so many things when you read this this really gross story of this date gone horribly awry that on the one hand you have you know feminists saying Aziz Ansari behaved badly but you would also have social conservatives saying there is no universe in which what Aziz Ansari does on this date should be correct behavior but what also 
strikes me is that, you know, there's this desire for folks to say, well, don't blame the victim. It's not her fault that this happened. You know, and, and people trying to litigate the, well, should she have said no and should she have left or left earlier? And then this caught, you know, even if you entertain the idea that that's a discussion, you know, burn the witch and what have you. But I, I think that if you are the Me Too movement and the feminist movement and you're looking at the Aziz Ansari saga, I think a big problem is that is is that the reason why this woman whose pseudonym is Grace is in this horrible situation and kind of is trying to send these no, I don't want to do these things vibes, but but isn't really coming out and saying, no, why are you being disgusting? I'm leaving your house right now. And who is naked for sending some of these vibes, which is hard for a dude, I will just say, for my speaking for my kind, torqued up dudes in front of naked women are lose their ability to catch some nuance, I will just say. You know, I'll just put it out there. But if, if we're looking for something in this, which is a the here's something for which you can blame the patriarchy. It's this idea that a woman in that situation, even if she has taken all of her clothes off, should not have the right to go, you know what? I, I changed my mind. I, this is suddenly this is not working for me anymore. And I'm going to go. Oh, I agree. Entirely. That, she that, should be able to say that. Right. Absolutely. Oh, sure. But that there there is this conditioning that women get, which is that if you're already in that situation, well, you don't want to be a tease, right? Well, you don't want to. I mean, gosh, that, that you'd that'd be really horrible if you did that. And I think that is something that is. I mean, if we could eradicate that view and get women to a place where they f- they feel like they can utter the words, no, absolutely not, I'm leaving, instead of feeling like they have to rely on these nonverbal signals because they don't quite know that they want to say it because they don't want to be the bad guy and they'd really rather the guy just kind of get the message and figure it out and leave her alone. I think if we can, I, I think my hope is that the-, the the bad guy here is this idea that women should feel that they can't make a decision to walk away from a sexual encounter. Yeah, no, I agree with that, too. I mean, like, that's my problem with it. And I Which agree- is why I place it, and this is what gets <coughs> in trouble as victim blaming. I'm not necessarily blaming the victim in this situation. I'm blaming the conditioning that led her to think she could not say no more forcefully. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I mean, and, and I think, you know, there's a. I, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to Caitlin Flanagan and, and Barry Weiss's takes on this, but I'm also someone who just thinks character matters, and it matters for men and it matters for women, and you know, and you know, maybe because you know, my mom has stories of Washington in the 1960s, where, which involve more than once kicking men in their nether regions and walking out of rooms and that kind of thing, and it's weird. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a uh, older uh, makeup lady who you probably know as well, but we don't have to get her in any trouble at one of the networks. And it's funny how older women, on the one hand, are more they're 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 more sympathetic to lecherous men than I would be, or that I want my daughter to be, or that my wife is, and that I presume you are. But on the other hand, they're also much better. At least this is purely anecdotal. I don't know about polling or anything. Like that. They're also much better at saying, stand up for yourself. If, if some guy's being a pig, you know, walk out, kick him in the wherever. And there's something about millennial or younger millennials, I should say, that seems like they've just sort of 
on the they want to blame the system or arrangements you know and the you know sh- this this girl grace she didn't get she didn't get red wine and it's supposed to be like this that was one of those thing sentences in where in the story that that was one of the ones where I thought, oh, this is losing me. This is, uh, you know, it's it's that I I what worries me is that I, th- I think this is from the, the Caitlin Flanagan piece yeah. was was the idea that there was a time when women felt more like they could say, no, don't do this or this is what I want. And it is odd that we would have regressed right away from that in a in a time when. Women have more opportunity than ever. And and that that argument in her piece really, really struck me. And I think it was either she or the, the Barry Weiss piece referenced something Margaret Atwood has written. So Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, feminist icon, has gotten in trouble recently because she has spoken out in defense of a colleague from the academic community who was accused and I believe exonerated or somewhat exonerated of, of misbehavior. But she wrote a great piece uh, this weekend that was all about how Part of being a feminist means believing that men and women are equally capable of doing evil and bad things right. and are equally capable of of achieving great things. And that if you are truly a feminist, believing that women should be coddled and are not capable of making these decisions and shouldn't be, shouldn't be expected to say no, that they don't want something, that that is demeaning and belittling to women as well. And that resonated. Yeah, no, I... I Feminism, I always thought the best definition of feminism is that women are people too. And that's not necessarily a compliment, you know, um, because people suck. All right. So we got to close out, but I got, I got two last things. One, you're sort of a defender of the millennial creatures, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and all right. So Jonathan Haidt, a guy named Steve Horwitz, um, a few other people have put forward this thesis that I'm sort of very sympathetic with or two that which sort of is, relates to all the stuff we've been talking about. That's starting with the Aton Pates kidnapping in 1982 or wherever it was, 78, um, which I remember well because I was a little kid at the time. He was the first kid on a milk carton, right? There became this, this crazy moral panic in the United States about letting your kids play outside, play alone. And to sort of summarize very quickly, that combined with the rise of sort of helicopter parenting and uh, zero tolerance for bullying and all of these other sort of social trends, which are defensible in their own right. The problem is, is that they've lent themselves to this kind of um, thing, which I see in my kids' class and my kids' generation, see in my neighborhood, where kids today, particularly upper middle class and upper class kids, can live pretty much their entire school life never having to adjudicate an interpersonal conflict where a third-party authority figure doesn't come in. There's zero tolerance for bullying on the playground. You go run, tell teacher, teacher comes, breaks it up. Everyone's got to be nice. Everyone has to respect each other. Everyone has to be decent. There's no law of the jungle that marked my childhood, right? And you get these kids where the worst offense is to hurt someone's feelings. You get to be 18, you go to college. All of a sudden, what would you expect from these kinds of kids? Well, you might expect that if... If you're going to say something in class that might make them feel uncomfortable, you might need to give a warning, like a trigger warning or something like that. You may even need contracts because these kids don't date, right? They do everything by text, like that cat girl or cat person cat person thing, right? And and they so they don't know how to sort of adjudicate sort of interpersonal sexual relations in a healthy way. And they end up coming out of – particularly I see them all the time. They come out of these great colleges – 
incredibly sophisticated in navigating the things that are expected of them, but emotionally not very tough. Not, you know, they think that, I mean, Jack notwithstanding, as I give him a hell of a hard time, you even see it in places like here at AEI where you get these kids where if you criticize them, they think you yelled at them, right? And it seems to me that, that I know it's a grand tradition of hating those kids today and all the rest, but it does seem to me that the millennial generation, yeah, generational stereotypes is wrong. Some of these kids become Marines and all that. I get it. Is more fragile and more delicate than in years past. Why, why am I wrong about so that? So part of my defense of millennials is then, well, who made us that way? <laughs> I'm fine you know, with blaming everybody. So, but I think there is – yeah, I think there is a, a heightened sensitivity – maybe it's a, there's a heightened sensitivity to things that previous generations were either not as sensitive to or were told, suck it up. Um, right. So whether it's bullying or things like that, I, I, I'm kind of okay with the idea that we are going to be a little tougher about – kids trying to make other kids lives living hell like i'm i'm okay with that i what worries me is more the what you mentioned about the the inability of these kids to resolve things on their own to be self-sufficient or to um just solve it amongst yourselves the need to appeal to a higher authority to do everything and solve everything Mm mm-hmm I mean, you now have this uptick in, you know, parents intervening in their students, their child's grades in college. I cannot think of a moment that my parents ever contacted a professor at the University of Florida, and I would have been mortified if they had. And this is one of those me being at the older edge of the millennial generation sorts of things. I have a friend in New York who wanted not who interviewed a kid out of a business school who wanted to bring his dad on the interview, which. To me, that right, you just don't want this job. You know that that settles the question. Yeah, I think anyway. for me, it's it's this belief that well, I need this other authority to resolve this or take care of this or advise on this. I mean, a good uptick or a, a good byproduct of this is you see a lot of millennials have very close relationships with their parents. They text their parents all the time. They're you know so the the, the relationship between millennials and their parents is actually very strong. It's a very family oriented generation, mm-hmm. but. If we're talking about the kind of the you've all lived in fractured republic, we need these institutions of civil society where people are just kind of figuring things out in their own communities and amongst themselves and you help your neighbor out. You don't have, you know, the national help your neighbor program that forces you to do it. And that if if as a generation, millennials are reliant on authority figures and structures to govern everything around them. Does that make them even more susceptible to this idea that like, well, the free market, I mean, that's that seems risky and crazy. Right. And well, don't we need a government authority to say that you can't say that because that's hurtful? And don't we need a government authority that can say you can't do that because that's dangerous? And that's this is something that concerns me the most about our generation. And again, it's not overtly political, but it is cultural that will then, I think, bleed into their political attitudes about do we just leave people to kind of fend for themselves and work things out? Because ultimately, it's not always going to work out great, but that's the the best way at big scale to do this. Or do we expect a government or some other authority to micromanage everything? And I worry millennials are more open to the latter. Yeah, I'm I'm extremely <laughs> worried about it. But we'll have to explore that further another time. And last question. So I've asked this about a bunch. Of, it's sort of my standard farewell question. I'd like to ask what thing about Washington – either surprised you the most once you sort of planted roots here 
or would surprise normal people outside of Washington the most if you told it to them. Um, and if you need help, if you need time, like Yuval Levin's is the most popular answer so far. Ben Sass talked about inappropriate nudity in the Senate gym, which I don't think is your answer. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but Yuval's was um, uh, that nobody knows what they're doing. And what he meant by that was that there's this perception out there that there's a serious – that there are forces in Washington that have plans and they can implement their plans and see them through to fruition in complicated long-term projection ways when in reality it's much more chaotic and there's just stuff going on and – People don't know if a story, if a speech or a story or a policy thing is going to capture the press's attention or not. And plan, God laughs at all plans. And it's just everybody trying to claw their way and make sense of a chaotic situation. So th- th- this is not a terribly original thought on my part. But I came to Washington thinking it was going to be the West Wing. People warned me that it was going to be House of Cards and it turned out to be Veep. Uh, yep. Now, these shows didn't exist when well, sure, sure, West sure. Wing did. But – You know, I wanted to move to Washington and work in politics, in part literally because I had watched a lot of West Wing and thought, gosh, I really want Sam Seaborn's job one day. And that's going to be my life. And this is so exciting. And, oh, my gosh, that Ainsley Hayes character, she's so fabulous. She's the conservative woman that they introduce. And when I arrived, I was stunned at the amount of authority that people only two to three years older than me had. Mm. My internship was over on Capitol Hill And so it was stunning to me to discover that there were people who are a chief of staff to a congressman and they're 28 years old. Like, that's madness to me. I thought that like a chief of staff, that's a job you get at the end of your career when you're, you know. And so I was stunned to discover, you know, people had warned me, oh, Kristen, you're going to get to Washington and you're going to discover that people are all just really unethical and they're all looking out for themselves and it, it really wasn't until about the last year of my life in Washington that I, I didn't feel like that was the case. Yeah. Now in, in this new era, I am much more likely to believe, oh, no, no, people are not actually driven by principles. They're driven totally by these unsavory uh, motivations. So I'm, I'm awake, yay, after <laughs> a decade of being naive. Um, but but I, I think this I was – Disillusionment is so liberating. <laughs> yes. Some, so, so, but it, it was not that I got to Washington and was – immediately disillusioned by how uh, sort of craven or that wasn't it. It was that I got here and I was stunned at how young people were who wielded enormous, at least perceived authority. That there are people here in this building at at AEI who write influential papers on policy that I would assume if you asked the average American, like, oh, this person wrote this white paper about how to reform the healthcare system. How many decades do you think they've been working in policy? And the answer would be dramatically older than the person is. Which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing, but it definitely surprised me when I got here. Okay. Fair enough. Well, it's Kristen, not Kirsten, right? I always want to say Kirsten. And, That's right, Kristen. I, when I searched for your email, I keep typing in Kirsten. And I was like, I know I sent her this email. Anyway, thank you, Kristen. Uh, lovely to have you on. We hope to, hope you'll come back. Absolutely. And um, keep hope alive. Thank you. Okay, so Kristen has left the building and. Uh, I think that there will no doubt be a uh, feminist tribunal that will second guess how I uh, treated our first female guest on the uh, podcast. And I really regret that this became a thing about a female guest on the podcast because it's just not how I thought about it. Um, As anybody who's listened to this podcast knows, the amount of 
deep thinking on the producing end to prepare for these podcasts is is very limited. And uh, well, it's uh, limited to the amount of deep thinking the two of us can do, which. I mean, we'll let others judge how the extent to which that is possible. Yes, we're grading on a curve, dependent variables, all of that witchcraft. So, Jack, do you want to rise to the defense of um, your uh, age cohort ilk? Uh, sure. Well, first, let me let me air a long-standing grievance, uh, or not not as much a grievance, but a curiosity. Kristen noted in the interview or in the podcast, the main interview, that. We prefer the word conversation on this podcast, but go on. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Whatever in the discourse, uh-huh. she noted... The logos. <laughs> the logos. <laughs> How many more words for this can we come up with? Um, let's not find out. She noted that definitions for being a millennial are very fluid. The one that she used was people born in the 80s and 90s, which... I mean, someone born in 1981 has basically nothing in common with someone born in 1999. Yeah. And I noticed this in... The, the the generational parameters for being a millennial are still being determined. So every time there's a news story about, like, millennials are changing the workplace in this, in this way, there's always some throwaway line that shows what parameter the, uh, the writer of this given story uses, and they're almost always different from one another. Uh, so it's still up in the air. Well, the thing is, look, I've been writing about generational stereotyping. It's been one of my core themes for literally like 20 years now. Because when I came to Washington, or shortly after I came to Washington, there was this big movement for, to get Gen Xers in the newsroom and on TV. And that they, they were the generation that was going to take over. Now, I'm a Gen Xer, you know, allegedly. And I remember Jonathan Carl is like the only guy from that entire – there was this whole cottage industry of young people who were basically – claiming that the only added value they were bringing was the fact that they happened to be born during a specific time, late 60s, early 70s, or whatever it was, right? That was my cohort. And and Jonathan Carl, to my recollection at least, is the only one of those guys who did it right, where, yeah, sure, he got in the door as the, like, I think he was the Gen X correspondent for CNN or something like that. But the second he got there... He just started wanting to do like real news and be an actual journalist. And he, if, if guilty baby boomers with this cult of youth were stupid enough to buy that hiring people based upon their Gen Xness was a good idea, that's on them. He just did it as a way to get in the door. But most of these people became professional Gen Xers. And I had such seething contempt for them back in those days. And, um, and that's always been my problem with this generational stereotyping stuff. It's like the greatest generation, if you stormed the beaches of Normandy, right, or Guadalcanal or did any of that kind of stuff, man, you don't – you shouldn't have to pay for another drink for the rest of your life. You you did good. If you were in the drunk tank in Peoria <laughs> when they were landing on Normandy Beach – why do I have to like ascribe to you greatness status? You didn't you weren't part of a the whole idea that there's a whole generation of great people diminishes the accomplishment of people who did heroic things and elevates the lack of accomplishment of people who were just, you know, who weren't there, you know? And it's the same sort of thing that you find all over the place where you find young people who want to elevate the fact that they just happen to be born at some time as a source of their identity. And it drives me, I mean, I wrote a lot about this in, in Tyranny of Clichés, but, you know, there is nothing 
um, inherent in youth that makes you particularly noble or better or more insightful, right? I mean, there is an incredibly high correlation between youth and stupidity. Babies are born really friggin' dumb. They're cute, but they're really dumb and they're ignorant and they don't know a lot, right? And it turns out that the, the correlation between not being dumb and not being young, i.e. getting older, is really tight. <laughs> and yet, and the things that young people bring to politics are all the things as a curmudgeonly conservative that I'm skeptical about. Passion over, you know, wisdom, um, enthusiasm, a desire for action over a desire for sort of thinking things through. And so, so much of what youth politics is, is really just a worship of power. And I, I despise it. But I'm ranting and we're off topic already anyway. Yeah, well, the other thing I'll say about millennials, sort of uh, to piggyback on what you were saying about the greatest generation, I am firmly in favor of not – or minimizing generational stereotyping to an extent. I am I, – despite being a millennial by pretty much every definition, I don't really like them very much. <laughs> um, that's because you don't like people. That's true, yeah. People are the worst, are. as Seinfeld told us. But – and I think a lot of millennials need to be kept from positions of power for as long as possible. <laughs> but at the same time... But that's true of all young people. Yes. Yeah. Um, revolutions are almost exclusively... The ranks of almost every revolution is comprised of young people. They, 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 especially unemployed college graduates. Yeah, it's a no, dangerous contingent. That, that, boredom and impatience have caused more human misery than... Almost any other thing in human history. Yeah, but the the uh, I will say that not all millennials are the way that we are often uh, described or um, insulted in. So I mean, no, that, that, that's all fair. Look, and all Gen Xers weren't the same either, right? I mean, the whole point is any you can't have it both ways. You can't claim that you're a rich, vibrant, diverse culture in terms of your generational cohort. And at the same time, claim that you all think the same way, right? I mean, they're at odds with each other. And yet that's – it's the same rhetoric. It's what the friggin' hippies did. It's what the baby boomers did. It's what the Gen Xers did. And I, when I say the baby boomers, hippies, and Gen Xers, I mean the anointed spokespeople who are trying to trade on the fact that they were a certain age into a kind of identity politics. It's the arguments that they made. It's not the arguments that normal – I mean, a normal 24-year-old right now probably doesn't care that much that they're a millennial, right? I mean, why, why would you take all that much pride in it? They probably care more about being, you know, a good husband or a good football player or a good this or a good that, right? I mean, those are the things that you actually do. Being a certain age is not an accomplishment, you know, unless you're like in the Battle of Stalingrad or something <laughs> and you manage to survive, that's an accomplishment, right? But if you're not dodging death, merely advancing another year in age is not an accomplishment that you should take an enormous amount of pride in. Well, you should once you start getting into the the hundreds, then it becomes a big deal. Yeah, no, that's true. That's <laughs> all fine, right? So, I mean, everything, everything has an exception. Okay, yeah. anyway. We've now revealed ourselves both to be about twice the age that we actually are. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's that, which is nice. So, I want to thank all of the people who um, sent in suggestions for... For my catchphrase or sign-off phrase, you know, we talked about this last week at the end of the Charles Murray podcast. And if you hadn't listened to that, you really should. And I want to thank everybody who's downloaded and subscribed this. You know, this is a real important point. I should, you know, Rich Lowry always begins the editors 
with this um, request. He says, you know, if you like what you're listening to, it's great that you're downloading at nationalreview.com, but it'd be much better if you downloaded at iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or one of those kinds of places. Same thing goes here. I have to think at this point, though, if you like what you're hearing, if you don't like what you're, you're hearing, you are not listening to this part right now because it's it's a good – it's well over an hour into the podcast. So – but if you can subscribe, it's really important. I'm starting to be a little bit of a cocaine monkey when it comes to like uh, – or a cocaine study monkey, you know, uh, when it comes to looking at my rank on the uh, – Remnant's rank on the iTunes charts. And I hit refresh on that a lot. And it's also great to get more reviews in. Jack, I've lost the uh, the email with the with the closing line that I wanted to use for this week. Oh uh, well, good thing I'm a millennial. I'll be able to find it instantly, or maybe not. We'll see. Uh, but in the meantime, we can plug the other things about this podcast: the podcast Twitter account at Jonah Remnant. Oh, I found it. Okay, yes, at at Jonah Remnant dot com. Uh, <laughs> at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. Sorry, I'm kind of delirious. Tell me something I don't know. And the. Email is Jack the remnant pod at gmail.com. Okay, and I don't know if we're going to do another one this week. The breakneck pace of two a week is <laughs> took a heavy toll on you, but uh, and maybe our listeners too. Yeah, I got some complaints from people saying that they didn't like breaking up their pattern of listening to the remnant once a week, which I thought was interesting that it's already become a thing that they schedule time to do this once a week and doing it twice a week. You know, we've already so firmly entrenched ourselves into the lives of our listeners. That's the plan. All right. So anyway, um, I thought today's conversation with Kristen was a good one um, for this sign off. I'm not saying I'm going to make this permanent, but I believe it's pronounced Nick Borton, um, who's a listener who sent us an email at the remnant pod at Gmail dot com. See how that works. We read our email here. He suggested an old Soviet dissidents toast, which was. Let us drink to the success of our hopeless cause. I like that a lot. It sort of fits the title of this or the idea behind the remnant in the first place. And uh, and it also jibes pretty well with my status as a semi-functional alcoholic. So you put those two things together and um, it works out pretty well. And you're related to not a Soviet dissident but a Soviet refugee, right? Is that your mom's father? No, that is... Uh, or your your wife's father. Yeah, my wife's father. He's not quite a Soviet refugee. He's a... Um, he, is, he, he escaped the communists by swimming the Danube when he was like 16 years old. I mean, that... It's good enough. Yeah. Right? I mean, but then that's another greatest generation thing, right? If you stayed behind in Slovakia, the idea that you could judge both men, you know, one who stayed behind to push a broom in a factory under communists and the other one who swam the Danube to escape communists and get a master's degree from Milton Friedman. These are men of different accomplishments just because they're the same age means nothing anyway we can talk about my father-in-law another time until then though let us drink to the success of our hopeless cause see you next time or talk to you next time or something